Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. We're just five days out now from the US presidential election, and Donald Trump and Joe Biden are both campaigning today, Thursday, in Florida, one of the key battleground states. The stakes in the US election have rarely been higher, and I'll be getting the latest on the campaign shortly from our Washington correspondent, Suzanne Lynch. But first this week, we're turning our attention to the coronavirus pandemic. A number of European countries are returning to lockdown as a second wave of coronavirus infections hit the continent. In Germany, China... A second wave of the virus seems to have caught governments across Europe off guard, forcing many of them to begin once again shutting down major areas of their economies in a desperate bid to reduce infection rates. The virus is spreading throughout France at a pace which even the most pessimistic of provisions had not forecast. Our Europe correspondent, Naomi O'Leary, has been tracking this story and she joins me now from Brussels. Um, Naomi, it seems no length of time since the summer when something approximating normal life returned across Europe after the spring lockdowns and there was a good degree of optimism around. Uh, None of us thought the pandemic was over and we knew a second wave was coming. But there was a sense, I think, that our governments had got ahead of the virus and were well placed to deal with the rise in infections. What went wrong, do you think? Yeah, well, this certainly wasn't the plan, that's for sure. The strategy that was supposed to be put in place um, by European governments uh, was to put in essentially to firefight where there were reinfections arising or new cases, new clusters arising. And in order to do that, you need to have a really comprehensive testing system that that gives back results really quickly um, so that you have a kind of a real time picture of where the infections are. And then the other thing you have to do is effective containment measures. So you stop the change of infection uh, from spreading. And European governments, um, well, it seems by their own mission now, are saying that there was too much of a rush to um, resume more normal life. Um, So, for example, the EU, the EU institutions really spearheaded a campaign to try and normalise travel again throughout Europe. This is because... A lot of people's jobs rely on the travel industry, a lot of small businesses, restaurants um, and people traveling from one place to another has kind of built up, you know, a whole system of economic reliance and people's reluctance to travel and the drop in travel was really affecting that. So a lot of countries were quite keen for that to resume over the summer. Um, And so there was a big effort to save the summer season. But um, what what we know about travel is that it causes um, new, it seeds new chains of transmission randomly um, into countries in, a, in new locations that are unpredictable uh, and that aren't uh, detected quick enough for them to be clamped down on. And we can see that from a news report that's out today about a, um, most of the 60%, I think it is, of, of the infections in Ireland are a, a strain that has emerged in Spain. And it's... it's um, pinpointed to people returning from holidays in Spain for spreading this infection um, in Ireland. Um, So what has gone wrong is uh, the strategy hasn't worked. And I think possibly part of the reason for this is one that testing uh, wasn't testing systems. It's kind of a different story in every country, but often they weren't quick enough to give results. They weren't comprehensive enough. It wasn't easy for people to access them. Sometimes you need a referral from a doctor. There's sort of gatekeeping. It's not like you can just sort of walk up to, um, you know, a, a driving testing uh, facility and, and just get a test. There wasn't testing in airports as a matter of course. And then the other aspect of it is that 
uh, the quarantining of people who had been exposed, who were potential cases or who had the virus, um, it wasn't enforced and it also wasn't provided for. So not everybody has the ability to quarantine. Um, it kind of uh, just allow giving that responsibility to people doesn't allow for the fact that you've got, you know, flatmates who share with six other people who are all working and they don't have a meaningful way of of keeping to themselves. They share bathrooms. There's multi-generational families. These sort of measures which put everything onto the individual, individual assume a citizen that has an ample house, you know, that has the power to stay out of work, has the resources to stay out of work that's not going to get fired or not get paid if they don't show up. Um, the kind of, you know, people who, who have to turn up to work to get paid uh, have a strong incentive to kind of talk themselves out of worrying about any little cough that they might have. And they don't have necessarily facilities to quarantine themselves. So basically, the strategy hasn't worked. And we can point to all sorts of reasons for why that is. Um, and I think that the European countries are now thinking again. But an unfortunate thing is that the response to the pandemic has become mass- massively politicized. So um, instead of it being a question of um, health measures, you know, and what best practices, you've got people associating certain strategies with fundamental values like freedom, um, which is it makes it really, really difficult to make a coherent all society response, which is what is needed to combat the virus. Um, and can you give us a picture, sorry for cutting in there, Naomi, of the scale of the problem? What kind of infection rates are we looking at now and how do they compare to the first wave in the spring? The infection rates are enormous. I mean, in France, we had 50,000 cases in a single day over the weekend. You've got parts of Europe, many parts of Europe, where figures like one in four tests are coming back positive. And that what, in, what that indicates is that there's whatever official testing results you have is a big underestimate of the actual number of infections. Um, you're just missing a lot because, you know, any num- any test is just going to be a sampling of the population. Um, so, in you know, what what you have now is that even though we're only really at the beginning of the season when hus- hospitals are traditionally strained, um, even now the hospital systems are becoming overwhelmed in um, numerous countries at once. Um, so right now in parts of Spain, in Fra- in in Belgium, in the Netherlands, uh, in the Czech Republic, in Poland, you're all seeing problems with hospital capacity. And of course, in Northern Ireland, um, there's um, or emerging problems with ICUs being full, of there not being enough staff of patients waiting to be admitted to hospital. Um, so the number of cases is more than can be dealt with by the facilities that there are. And there was an understanding, Naomi, for a while there as infection rates started to rise that perhaps the hospitalisation rates and and the fatalities weren't following in the same proportion as they did earlier in the year. Um, Is that still the case? I don't think so. I mean, um, I don't know why that would be the case. Like there's always a lag between the number of infections jumping to the number of hospitalisations and then to deaths because it takes, you know, a while for um, people to get really ill. And so the first warning sign is you have is that you, is a jump in infections. And yesterday we had a press conference by the virologist uh, Peter Piot, who's kind of well known for his work on HIV and other things. Um, and 
Um, he said that, you know, it's as sure as night follows day. First of all, you're going to have a rise in infections and after that it's hospitalizations. And we can't wait until the deaths, until we act. Because if you start acting when there's deaths, then, you know, it's going to get worse before it gets better. It takes a while for measures to kick in. Um, but, you know, I think there's a problem in Europe in that there's been an equation of restrictions on people's ability to move, on businesses' ability to open. That That's what measures against the virus are understood to be. When we should actually look at countries that have succeeded in containing the virus to look for effective measures. Um, those kind of society-wide broad brush restrictions are required when the virus is out of control, when it's gotten into community transmission. But when it's at a lower level, and you, we, what the countries that have been successful in containing it have done have zeroed in on those cases, um, quarantined people, given people facilities to quarantine, so set aside things like hotels for people to be in, brought them food. In Australia, your food gets delivered to you at home to help you, to support you to do your quarantine. People check on you, they call you every day. This kind of organization just didn't happen in Europe. Um, and then, of course, the contact tracing. Um, in Ireland, we had a bit of discussion about the fact that it, the contact tracing service was only going back three days, um, which doesn't... It, if we go by best practice in terms of what's worked to contain um, the virus, uh, we need to look at Asian countries like South Korea, Japan, where contract tracing is a lot more comprehensive. So they really track back the entire chain of transmission. And what they found doing that is that you tend to have individuals who uh, spread way more than others. So just a small percentage of people with, the, with COVID-19 are responsible for most of transmission. So if you find a case and you track it back, most likely you're going to keep finding cases who are all linked to one person. So you, you end up with a cluster. And that helps you to be effective in stopping that chain of transmission. And the other thing is that European countries have been incredibly slow to react and adopt to this kind of evidence. It was extremely slow for face masks to become accepted as something feasible, even in Europe. And still, you know, use of face masks is at lower levels than they need to be in order to be totally effective. Again, with ventilation, uh, the evidence about the importance of ventilation was um, very, very slow to be adopted and still isn't adequately being explained by the health authorities. And there's still, you know, most of the emphasis is on washing hands, which is important, but it needs to be uh, added to general health advice in a way that it hasn't been so far. And is the picture uniformly bad across the continent? Are there any outliers who are doing better than others? There are some countries which are have done better. Um, so if we look at Denmark, doesn't, Denmark hasn't done too too badly. Um, Germany so far has been sort of the star case. So um, parts of Germany were uh, still a green spot uh, way after neighbouring countries had, um, you know, gone orange and red. Um, and there was lots of kind of interest about why Germany had done better. Um, in the initial wave, it was thought that it was the demographic in Germany that was responsible for them having lower deaths. So it was young skiers who um, kind of had the big first wave of infections. And it um, it wasn't so much in the older generations as elsewhere. So they had a lower number of deaths. deaths. Um, now, part of this, what I'm saying is, um, you know, it, it, I think proper research needs to be still done to really explain all of these differences. But these are sort of some ideas that people have talked about. Um, and then uh, the second thing is that Germany has really ample health 
uh, facilities. They've got really lots and lots of hospitals and lots of um, like regional health clinics and lo- local health clinics. Um, and that really helps that that kind of resources really help you if you're trying to enact like a nationwide health policy. Um, and um, region to region, the authorities are in charge of response. So measures differ between different German states. Um, some parts of Germany were very early to adopt face masks, but it wasn't everywhere. It kind of differed from place to place. However, what we've seen is that Angela Merkel has sounded the alarm and said that Germany is now heading for a very, very serious situation. So it's possible that, you know, there's an element of luck involved here and it's how early is the virus seeded um, into your country um, what stage of the kind of development of the infection wave are you on um, rather than um, actions per se broadly across Europe um, the response has been different levels of bad um, Europe is kind of all failing in like different levels more or less um, so it's um, it's it's better to look at um, yeah f- further away for good examples. Now, EU leaders are having a virtual meeting today to discuss uh, the crisis. What can the EU do at an institutional level to try to turn the tide? Um, So they're really concerned now that um, the landmark economic deal that they reached in the summer to borrow lots and lots of money and basically pump it into European economies um, to help them recover from the pandemic. They're worried that that's not going to be enough now because of this um, resurgence in infections that is obviously going to have an enormous economic impact um, and there's always um, there's there's a lot of debate about you know is it the is it the restrictions is it the closing of businesses that causes the economic impact or is it the fact that the virus itself is rampant you know um, and this kind of is going to be discussed as well by finance ministers in terms of what you know their approach should be going forward um, but I think that there's if we look at the experience of different countries around the world, the worst economic impact has been the countries that have had the worst deaths. The wor- the highest percentage of deaths have had the, the deepest impact, places like Belgium. Whereas those countries that have been least affected economically are those who have been able to contain the virus. So East Asian countries, places like uh, Taiwan, like South Korea. Um, so what European leaders are going to do now is going to think they're going to think again and try and come up with a new kind of strategy. So far, I think there may be some um, perhaps a consideration of how they could change the approach to travel, um, perhaps try to introduce something like testing at airports, uh, because given the result of the opening up over the summer has been this massive resurgence, this is, that's going to be massively economic destructive. I think that's looking now to have been a quite a short-termist strategy. Now, Naomi, some of um, our listeners will have read your Europe letter this week, which is your, your weekly column on EU affairs, in which you pointed to failings at the heart of the EU establishment, which have contributed to this crisis. Can you tell us more about that and what you have what you have observed? Well, certainly in, in Brussels, um, I wrote in my column that kind of the past week was the week when fear returned to Brussels. Um, I mean, this, these are all personal observations that I have. So, you know, I, d- I don't know if they can be generalised, but certainly, at least in my observation, there was a kind of um, a feeling of un- invulnerability among politicians and officials. Uh, so along with that quick, that drive to reopen, um, to reopen borders, to get travel going, there was also a kind of an ideological commitment to... Um, you know, to returning to normality, to getting people back into the office. There were political groups in Brussels and also officials that would, you know, force 
obliged their staff to come into the office, um, even if those were jobs that could easily be done from home, uh, just for ideological reasons, you know, to be back at work. It's kind of like a presenteeism uh, habit. And then you'd also see, you know, be very common to see MEPs um, eating in groups inside busy restaurants, um, which is, you know, that's that's very voluntary. There's you can you know, you can get food to take away and still support the business and eat it in a more safe way than that. Um, but I think that in general, politicians don't tend to view themselves as vulnerable and they don't see themselves as frail people. Um, and so they don't really seem to have that sense of fear. This isn't exclusively a European thing. This is a, really a worldwide phenomenon. Politicians have been really, really badly hit by the virus. It's kind of, um, you know, something of an occupational health risk because they meet a lot of people. It's part of their job. Um, but also, I'm tempted to think that there's something psychological about it as well. You know, they just don't see themselves as as frail. You know, they're powerful, they're important, and they're somewhat above the virus. At least that's my experience um, and my observation of, of these people. Um, and you wrote about the impact all of this is having on how meetings are conducted there now. You know, what we've seen is that there, it was very important for the EU national leaders to continue to meet in person. They found that they couldn't hold their discussions over video conference calls because they didn't actually trust each other enough. They didn't trust that there wasn't someone out of shot of the camera listening in. They didn't trust that there wouldn't be leaks uh, that way they they couldn't be sure who they were talking to and the response like their reaction to that was uh, not to talk very plainly they sort of read out statements and were very careful with their words and that meant that progress couldn't be made on really difficult issues so then they had to you know they started holding physical meetings again in Brussels to um, to try and come to consensus on different issues because of that sort of lack of trust that made video calls impossible. And they did absolutely everything they could to try and make these things uh, safe. So, you know, they had teams of cleaners coming in and disinfecting everything. All these people are VIPs and have ready access to testing all the time. They get tested constantly. Um, They all started wearing masks, although there is a really uh, ridiculous habit, which is endemic among politicians and in kind of among important people of Brussels, which is to take off your mask when you're speaking. I don't know why this is. I think it's because they're used to being on camera and they think that people need to see their mouth. But, you know, it's totally self-defeating with everything that we know about how the virus spreads. If you take it off when you're speaking, like you're just like you're just potentially spreading the virus into the room. And the other thing is, about buildings in the in the EU capital is they've been designed with windows that don't open. So, you know, it's a bit of an issue for many of them in, in terms of ventilation. Um, and w- the result of this is that what we've seen is that despite having all the resources um, on hand and everything that they could, they couldn't stop the virus from spreading in among their own circles. So it was just like, Every week, every day almost, there was a new prominent person who was testing positive or someone who was in and out of quarantine. Um, You know, it really was disruptive. People were abruptly pulling out of meetings all the time because they had to go into quarantine. Um, And um, then, unfortunately, the kind of case that... There was also a case of actual spreading, um, you know, in a meeting of of finance ministers in in Germany, where it was actually an Irish staffer who was kind of blamed for bringing the virus. Um, And um, so they weren't actually able to keep the virus out um, of of circulation. And also the, the thing that I think changed the atmosphere and sort of brought fears back to Brussels again was um, the former prime minister of Belgium, Sophie Wilmes, caught the virus um, and unfortunately went into intensive care uh, shortly after she was diagnosed. She's only 45 years old. 
Um, she's got four kids with her partner, no apparent health conditions. And she was also the person that like led Belgium during the whole pandemic, during the whole year. She was prime minister for all of that. And she's currently foreign minister and deputy prime minister. So that kind of that that that, you know, a case of someone apparent, you know, young um, and healthy and fit uh, being taken down so badly by the virus. I think that really shook the the Brussels bubble. And I detected a, a change in attitude from that moment where people started going, OK, we have to think again. Um, the German presidency ended up um, calling off most meetings or putting them on online. And there was just a sea change after that happened. It was like they needed to have someone in their circle to, you know, to fall to this virus before people really considered that they themselves could be at risk and that their measures weren't enough. And fortunately, Sophie Wilnos has since exited intensive care, though she still is in hospital. She's not strong enough yet to leave. Well, that's good news, Naomi, but I suspect that feeling of invulnerability you mentioned has certainly well and truly vanished by now. Um, Thanks for that. We'll leave you there. We're turning now to the US election as the campaign enters its final stretch ahead of polling day on Tuesday. And I'm joined now by our Washington correspondent, Suzanne Lynch. Suzanne, how would you characterise the state of the race five days out from election day? Is Joe Biden's lead in the polls holding up or does Donald Trump have a viable path to victory here? Well, um, the latest polls this week have shown that Joe Biden's lead on a national level is very, very strong still. He's got a double digit secure lead there. Um, In the swing states, it's a bit more complex. Uh, he is still in the lead for most of those uh, states, uh, but his lead, his lead is smaller. Um, in saying that, uh, Biden still has a significant um, gap over Donald Trump in states, you know, like Michigan and Wisconsin, for example, um, Pennsylvania to an extent. But fl- states like Florida, uh, we still see, you know, a pretty tight contest there. Um, now, a positive for Democrats this week, however, has been a very good polling for them in states like Arizona and even in Texas. So we've seen a big increase in early voting in Texas. Democrats feel they have a lot of energy uh, in that state. And they think that this could be the year they flip it. So, you know, one possibility on election night is that we have a real surprise in somewhere like Texas, in somewhere like Georgia. And that would really be a, a complete rewriting of the electoral map if that was to happen. I refer there to next Tuesday as polling day, it's a slight misnomer in that more than 70 million Americans have already voted, and that's more than half the total who voted in 2016. What's the significance of that? And does it give us any pointers as to the likely outcome next week? Yeah, to be honest with you, it's quite difficult to um, glean a political message from that in one sense. And, you know, I'd be reluctant to do so in one way, because, yes, Democratic voters are more inclined and historically have done uh, to vote early or to use absentee ballots. Republicans are more likely to vote on the day. Um, so, uh, so far, the early voting does seem to be kind of favouring or suggesting a big, you know, energy on the Democratic side, particularly, as I mentioned, in states like Texas, because there's suspicion, you know, if there's a big increase in turnout there, that will really favour uh, the Democratic vote. Um, but, you know, Republicans, the Trump campaign have been consistently saying that, you know, they expect their uh, voters to turn up on the day. Um, to also participate in early voting and that really, you know, it doesn't matter when these votes are cast. So, uh, but look, what it does show, and this is a a real positive, is a level of enthusiasm and a level of participation, participation by citizens in this country in the the democratic process. And I think what's been a real positive again is that earlier in the year during the height of the COVID pandemic, 
there were awful scenes of long queues, long lines, places like Milwaukee, Georgia, New York, where there were serious problems with the polling stations and uh, people found it very difficult to vote. A lot of those uh, problems seem to have been ironed out to some extent. So while there has been big lines, big queues, you know, even if people couldn't vote in the first few days of early voting, they obviously can still vote. So uh, I think that some of the fears around voter participation uh, are not as strong as they, they were earlier in the year. However, there's probably going to be a new battle over when votes can be counted and start to be counting on election day, because a lot of states have already received millions of postal votes and the law varies in each state about when they can start processing those votes. And that's going to impact when there's an election result in those states. And already Donald Trump has uh, criticised this and said that essentially he wants an, a, a result on election night. But that looks very unlikely to happen, quite frankly. Now, both candidates are canvassing today in Florida, a key battleground state. Where do you expect to see them focusing their attention in the final days of the campaign? Yeah, over the last few days, we've seen uh, Joe Biden really trying to keep the focus on the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, The numbers here are rising. Uh, Worryingly for Donald Trump, he had good economic figures this morning with GDP figures in the third quarter. Uh, But the stock market has been doing uh, very badly um, on the back of COVID fears, essentially. Uh, so Donald, you know, Joe Biden is trying to keep the message and the focus on, on uh, Trump's handling of the virus. And Donald Trump is offering a competing narrative, effectively, saying uh, that, you know, they're rounding a corner and emphasizing the fact that uh, it's infection cases rather than deaths that have really peaked in the country. Uh, so I think that's Biden's focus. But yeah, to answer your question in Florida, they're both there today. And it's actually the first time we've seen the two candidates descend on a stage the same day. And they're, they're both actually going to Tampa which is over on the west coast of Florida, but at different times. Look, Florida, I think, is just to really emphasise it's so it's so crucial here. Um, Donald Trump in particular needs to win the state if he's going to win the election. And uh, both uh, campaigns have been putting a lot of money into the state. Um, ask, you're asking there who they're going to focus on. I think the two big groups to watch here are seniors over 65s and the Latino vote. Donald Trump uh, campaigned last week in the villages. That's the largest retirement community in the US in the centre of Florida. Um, and uh, actually yesterday the Trump campaign launched a new series of Spanish-speaking ads aimed particularly at Hispanic voters in South and Central Florida as well as Arizona and Texas. So I think that's the real focus there. Um, And, you know, actually we'll probably get a a result pretty early in Florida uh, of some kind of a call of the vote uh, because they they can already start processing their mail-in ballots before election day although you know there is still always the fear that we know what happened 20 years ago as we spoke about before and it came down to a few hundred votes in florida very possible chris the numbers are very tight in florida so i think that's going to be the one to watch and that's why they're putting so many resources into that state in the final days that's great suzanne thanks for that update we'll talk again at a little more length on monday ahead of election day and Suzanne's election diary continues to appear every morning on irishtimes.com. You can access that and our full coverage of the election at irishtimes.com forward slash US election. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now.